G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. We're really grateful for you to taking the time to download and listen to this RVC podcast. We don't ask for much in return. We're incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcast or Acast and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great. Um, any other reviews, leave to, to other podcasts. We really appreciate a, a moment of your time if you could um, if you could leave us a review. Anyway, uh, joining um, Brian and myself in the studio, we're joined by the great Professor Holger Volk. Thank you, Professor, for joining us on uh, what marks like the the hundredth podcast of this uh, reincarnation of the uh, RVC podcast so thank you very much thank you for this very kind and far too exaggerated introduction so uh, so Holger, can, can i um so you gave a, a, a podcast when um Shaden was was in the chair and it's, it's over over five years ago now uh, about um seizures so so maybe i could ask rather than reiterate what what's what's uh, what you did then it's more what what is what has changed in the last five years of our understanding of of seizures yeah, uh, thank you for the question. I, I mean, there has been obviously a lot has changed. Um, or saying it the other way around, um, we have um, learned a lot more about epilepsy management in general and about epilepsy being a brain disease. Um, if I now reflect on the last five years, I think from our research group's point, um, the main change has been that we see epilepsy now not only as a simple seizure disorder, so epilepsy beyond seizures. Um, epilepsy is, is far more than that. And, um, and it actually came about when we launched our epilepsy app. We had a, um, a human, uh, uh, I mean, a person who had epilepsy or um, still has epilepsy, um, and she told us about her experience with epilepsy. And, and the main story she was talking about was actually about her experience in between the seizures um, and how medication affected her. Um, um, and that the seizure itself, um, and she had some generalized tonic-clonic seizures, um, were not the worst, um, at least for, for, for this um, a person. Um, she says, yes, when you obviously fall and you hurt yourself, that's one thing. But um, in her seizure activities, she stopped to be conscious, so she was um, not aware of what was happening, and then she woke up. And... Um, and the nice things for her was when her family was around and then um, looked after her because she felt safe then. During the seizure, she couldn't recall. She didn't remember that she had really a seizure apart from obviously f finding herself on the floor. Um, but that, that was it. And for us veterinarians, seizure is kind of the main clinical sign. But actually, when speaking to her in a discussion we had she said you know for uh, for me for my quality of life the seizure yes i have i learned to live with but what really impacts my quality of life is my memory deficits um that i'm more sleepy um that i'm a bit more fearful um and what happened then is that um rena packer and i i mean rena fantastic researcher and we were looking into does actually um epilepsy in dogs also is associated with other um, brain abnormalities and saying that like do dogs have fear and anxiety disorders and um, when they have um, epilepsy and seizure activity and we found that um, nearly um, all the dogs for four and five dogs will have some little bit of a change in their behavior that doesn't mean that they're abnormal but some of these dogs will have fear and anxiety type um, abnormality and we found also with some fantastic research with some of our um, students here 
um, that they also might have a cognitive impairment. And we are looking into this a lot more in detail. So very similar as in human medicine, you find that there are some comorbidities, so um, diseases which we probably wouldn't have recognized before. And um, definitely when I look at our clinical practice in the past, we were looking at um, just let's stop the seizure activity. Um, and we're not really thinking, yes, we were thinking about side effects, but we were not as much thinking how much they could impact that animal's quality of life and how could epilepsy itself, so not only the drugs, uh, impact the quality of life. So these are probably um, a very different way of thinking about the disease. Um, and yes, we were working for a long time on medication which has less side effects, um, but it was not so much um, how could we explore the other characteristics. So was that was that person then saying that the medication had more of an impact than the actual seizures yes. themselves? And yeah. I suppose that, but obviously realised that there was some use for the medication, or did she want yeah, to be she, she medication-free? No, she definitely uh, found some use for the medication, but uh, her... The thing what kind of stuck to your mind, there's always certain people who touch your soul, right? And she was one of them. I, I think we all had tears in our eyes when, after she spoke and just talked about her uh, uh, experience with epilepsy and living with epilepsy and, have, and raising a family with epilepsy. I mean, having, you know, a family when you are a person who has epilepsy, a very, very touching person. And, um, um, and, and one of the things she said is, um, you know, Holger, I will have a seizure... Um, you know, a couple of times a year, but I live with the other uh, problems every day of my life. So I live with the side effects of the drugs every day, every second of my life, and I live with uh, the comorbidities every second of my life. And it was about finding the right physician. It took her more than 16 years to become seizure-free. And when she was uh, talking to us, she was seizure-free. And it was about... Um, more than just taking a pill. It was about lifestyle, uh, diet, um, avoiding trigger factors, and so on and so on. And it was to find the right physician who uh, worked with her together. Because, uh, you know, when reflecting on ourselves as a, as a vet, it's so easy to prescribe medication. Um, but I think, as we all know from personal experience, when we have any disease, it's a lot more than just um, swallowing a pill—that's that's a far too s simple solution for probably a very complex disease process, whatever whatever disease it is. And that has led us um, to not only explore the the impact these different factors have, but also looking at different management options. So, um, uh, a lot of owners um, and breeders um, told me for a long time that diet has an effect, um, and and you know in the beginning you think like yeah yeah yeah. But then when you looked into it, you know, they were right. And often the observations by people who live with that path, with that disease um, every day and every second of their life is probably better than what, what we see. So it really is important about the team uh, where the owner is included and, and obviously looking after that path. Um, but what we have been doing is we have uh, done... Um, there was another diet trial in the past, but um, uh, we did one of the first ones where we um, used some medium-chain glycerides, so there are different lengths of um, fatty acids, and the ones which are the middle long fatty acids, that's probably why they're called medium-chain fatty acids, um, C8 to C12, um, um, have shown to improve cognitive function in aging um, dogs. So and um, a colleague of ours was working on this very similar 
um, medium-chain fatty acids in, in uh, epilepsy research and found that they might also have some anti-seizure uh, um, aspects to it. And we have been working on that and found that when you, in, in, and now have two, two studies actually, where we could show that it's obviously not a, a cure, but when you add MCTs to a diet, so medium-chain glycerides, then some of the dogs will have no seizure. Um, some of the dogs will have a reduction in seizure activity. It's around half of them. So one in two, it, it improves outcome. All of the patients we saw had um, on medication, but the very interesting thing is that the diet um, influenced also their control. So um, they um, were better controlled and less side effects, and that's definitely something I was I was quite impressed by. Because how can a diet have this influence? And as natural, right? And you find something. People say it takes you. Um, 20 years to get into medicine, it takes you 100 years to get out of medicine. Um, we know, right, that how can a diet have such an influence um, into the brain activity to stop those seizures and improve cognitive function and improve some of the behavior profile? It's, it's one of those things we just don't believe it could be true, right? The drug is so much clearer because of mechanism of action. We do know that there are some mechanisms of actions which are proposed. We, uh, T. Law, a postdoc um, of mine, has done some amazing work. He looked at mitochondrial function and found a different fatty acid metabolism, um, and, and it looks like the mitochondria might work better. Um, and some have uh, also found that it uh, works on a on a receptor in the excitatory pathway, so the increasing activity of the brain, the, um, blocking an AMPA receptor, um, and there's some other theories around. So it's a quite an interesting new concept. But nevertheless, I think having a constant diet and probably owner uh, making sure they are giving the diet plus the medication um, probably will already improve. So having a good diet and and one of the things. So again, it's, it's not rocket science and when you, until you think about it, but I'm sure it's the same for you, Dom. When you come home, right, the first thing what your mom will do is give you some food. And if you only eat a little bit, she will feel very upset, right? Because the way she expresses herself is to give you some food. It shows her love, her appreciation to her son, right? Because she's really happy there. So you eat as much as you can, more than you should, probably. Um, and the same happens with dog owners, right? They want to care, and especially if you have a, um, an, um, a pet which is not so well, you want to obviously give more, um, and and they feed those pets. And when I, what I learned in this diet trial is people were feeding a lot of stuff, probably just, you know, the chocolate, so to speak. I mean, not for the pets, but for us, right? They won't give you something good, but actually if it would be too much and all the time, it might be actually bad. And then you think about what drugs we are giving. We're giving drugs which inhibit a certain area in your brain called the gate of consciousness, or how Patrick Kenny would say, the switch box in the brain. Um, and what it does is um, it, uh, it makes you more hungry, right? And we all know this. So um, on Monday, um, and I've seen, obviously, now I can, I can say to everyone who listens, Brian in the, in, the, in the gym on Monday, always very active, getting him into gym on Friday is more difficult, right? Because when we are, after the weekend, we are rested, we, you know, we love it, and uh, we have a lot of energy, but then over the week, it decreases. Our thalamic activity decreases, we are more sleepy, and we are more sleepy, we want to eat some 
more comfort food, right? And then suddenly you sneak in this nice curry or um, Chinese. And we all know how you feel afterwards, but we still do it, right? Because it just feels right at the moment of time. And the same is when you have an epileptic patient, right? We give them the drugs which makes them more sleepy. Phenobarb was, for example, first um, developed as a sleeping medication. Um, and then we wonder why they eat so much, right? So we are doing also some research, and I'm really looking forward to crunch the numbers in eating behavior. So you should definitely get Rovina Paco in. Um, um, how, how can that be affected? So looking, if you think about five years ago, five years ago I was um, trying to find the new medication which would revolutionize um, epilepsy management. Um, I think we have been a bit disillusioned because all the new drugs... Nothing has really made the breakthrough. We still have um, a population of around a third which will never become, um, um, which might become seizure free. Two thirds of our population will never become seizure free. So it's um, it's it's quite a. So we, we're just looking how can we improve the quality of life better for these pets and um, and especially looking at the side effect profile and understanding the full breadth of the disease. When you look. Uh, sorry for rumbling on, but when you look at the side effect profile which impacts the owners the most, which is again something I was a fascinating finding, um, uh, a very nice study from Annette Westman, that again, as it as often is, that you know, you speak to some great first opinion practitioners now, this was Robin Farquhar, and she, a um, good friend of ours, and she, she, she explained to me why these side effects which we found were so important. Um, so what we found was that the quality of life was most affected for the owner, so the person who looks the caretaker of, of the epileptic pad, were sedation and taxia. And, and I thought, like, this is, this is odd. I would have thought, you know, not one of the number ones is urinating in the house. So I thought the polyuria, polydipsia, you often see as a, uh, drinking and peeing too much, would be one of those um, which would highlight. But it didn't. Um, and, and then when I showed this to Robin, the data, and she said, oh, that makes totally sense because owners feel um, more guilty about something which they can experience every day. So they can obviously see the dog being wobbly, they can see the dog being more sleepy, and that will affect them because they feel a bit guilty that the dog will have these um, uh, impacts, right? Um, when you look at what they thought, uh, taking the owner as a proxy on the uh, decrease in the quality of life of the pet itself, then it was obviously high seizure frequency and being on polypharmacy, um, which is uh, probably very all um, very interlinked because that also is often associated with um, higher taxia and sedation because you have more drugs, right? Um, so that was definitely an interesting um, experience. We have worked a lot over the last couple of years with some fantastic um, breed uh, associations um, and they have taught us a lot and um, yeah, it actually helped us a lot also doing quite a few survey studies I think I would have never thought about it would do so many survey studies as well, right? Um, but these are probably the main things. So thinking about epilepsy management beyond drugs and epilepsy management, um, epilepsy beyond seizures, that's probably the two things, I think, which has changed for our research in epilepsy. And is there a big gap between <clears throat> what what uh, what you see at a referral level and also sort of what happens uh, for the vast majority of animals that are on seizure medications and that have, that have never had a MRI or any sort of further investigations into their court? Definitely, definitely. I think um, um, we 
have a very selected population. I mean, first of all, when you come to us, um, you only have a 14% chance that your pet becomes seizure-free. And it's not because we are worse, but it just reflects the great work which is done by first opinion practitioner because they have already given most of the drugs we could also give, right? So we can only polish the edges. Um, that might be different in different countries, but definitely in the UK, um, first opinion vets are very, very good already. I think one of the penny drop moments I had was um, when we had, uh, again, a fantastic RVC student who did some research in compliance, which is still something we have to write up um, very, um, and I hope I will actually use the next couple of weeks to write a couple of papers. Um, but what she found is, is something I, I, I just couldn't believe, but only one in five uh, of owners are 100% compliant with giving the medication. Um, and what she was doing, just to explain you how we got to that result, was that she um, did a survey online um, and we also did another study where she actually went to practices and looked at the prescribing behavior and how often people come back, right? For Finobab, you have to come back to get your repeat prescription, right? Um, and she found that... Um, most owners, like I said, were not compliant. They missed quite a few doses. And they actually missed, as a median, six doses, right? As a first opinion setting, obviously. Over what time period? Um, so she was always a, a, a month, right, uh, of the interval, right? But she, um, over the whole study population. So quite a lot, right? And then I th reflected, because I had a pet with epilepsy, and I guess, you know, you often missed one dose or so. Um, and Reflecting on that, um, and we had some owners which just stopped the medication and then started again, and, and so on. And we all, again, if you just look at your normal life, right, when you go to the dentist, I mean, you brush your teeth like crazy, right? I'm sure, Dom, you, you brush your teeth every day like crazy, but most people, they brush them even better when they go to the, to the dentist, right? Um, makes probably no difference um, because it's the routine of taking, um, you know, scrubbing your teeth and um, rather than two days before being mad. And, um, and people have done some amazing research in compliance where they've given uh, people eye drops where they've known that they will lose their eyesight um, and um, then realized that people were actually only 70% compliant. Very similar to our overall compliance in our study was around 70%. Um, and you could even lose your eyesight. And when they looked at, you know, they, they could have those uh, drip counters, and um, they looked at over time when people were given it more. When they went to the doctor, obviously, they were up with their compliance and then went down again. So what we, you know, um, we are not saying, oh, bad, bad owner. That's not at all what we're saying, because I've been an owner myself. The question is, what can you change in your behavior so you don't miss that? Because some of these dogs, we know that when you just give Finobarb to a normal dog and you would stop, then some of the dogs will have withdrawal seizures. So, right, the medication um, changed the um, GABA uh, receptors and also the content, uh, the concentration in the brain. And, and so it's a fascinating thing. So we have been doing some work on that, and Rina is leading that work together with Amy, who was one of my former uh, tutees, um, in interviewing owners and seeing how we can help them change their behavior. I guess it's, you know, um, as I just saw you putting away your smartphone, that has changed our behavior, right? Um, and has probably a massive influence um, of, of 
us. And the question is, this simple device has changed you so much, so how could we, for example, when you give drugs, can change the behavior as much, that you get this kind of little bit of addiction that you are um, better in your compliance, because that will definitely make a difference. And I think that's one of the effects when I talked about the diet, is probably what we saw, right? Is, um, I mean, people have described it as a Hawthorne effect, but your participant then will be more uh, accurate with giving the medication and so on. We have the Epilepsy app, which hopefully one day, if the developer is finally releasing the last, last version, um, we have been working on this now for a while, and um, if he hears it, feel pressure. Um, is um, we have a, a, a little um, reminder uh, built in, and hopefully in the new version, the reminder will be even louder. So you, your app will then remind you that you have to give the medication. Um, that obviously will only work for one person, but still um, that might help. And when you looked at um, compliance, and this is very interesting potentially for you, Dom, is um, between the different type of uh, dogs, uh, the dogs which went to referral hospitals or were on multiple medications had a better compliance. So the patient's um, specialist sees might not be the same than the normal general practitioner sees. So they, and then if you think about it, we have an hour, they have 10 minutes or eight to change a behavior. So it has to be quite a powerful conversation. And, and I'm not sure how easy that would be uh, in such a short period of time. So, you know, owner support groups and so on are, are really essential. So when you're developing <coughs> that app, maybe the, the, uh, a uh, notification, you know, should should say, have you medicated your bed? Exactly, yeah. You I get mean, rid of that moment. and it says, are you sure you've medicated <laughs> yeah, You exactly. get rid of that and he goes, are you really sure? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Before you have your glass of wine tonight, have... <laughs> maybe with a, uh, yeah. with a picture of you being stern. <laughs> are you sure you've given that? No. And then yeah. you can, can go from there. But it's an interesting thing, right? So I think what has um, changed is we, we look at diseases a bit more holistically now. Um, and... Um, if you look at the stuff what has been done at the RVC, a lot of us um, came to the same conclusion. So it appears to be a, a time effect of a generation of researchers. We have seen this for other diseases, uh, where people now suddenly think about dietary modifications. They think about, uh, is it just really the medication? Can we do something else? Um, so, yeah, it's a really fascinating time. Is that the, the fact that so like thinking back before you said that seizures are also a, a, a problem that clients sort of have, as in you know, witnessing a, a seizure oh, yeah. and putting their pet on a medication be, because of that? Um, have some people gone back to saying, well, if it only happens you know once a month, I'd rather them yeah. just do that? Is, it, is there more of an open discussion now about that, or do we think that? Actually, the process of having a seizure is a as a problem, and, get, and and as in, without any medication on board, might predispose to a worsening progression of the disease. No, it's a really, it's a really good um, question, and I can't really give you the, um, I mean, a one hundred percent answer. Um, we do know from work we have done um, a few years back, where we followed our um, docs in the epilepsy clinic, that if you have cluster seizure or status of epilepticus, so if you have either a prolonged seizure activity or uh, multiple seizure in a very short period of time, that will uh, make you more likely to be drug resistant. That means you don't respond to drugs. Um, however, um, and I give often the example, if you have a dog which had five seizures over the last two years, that dog 
will probably respond okay. If this dog will have five seizures in the last week, that dog probably will not respond as well. Um, we, we, we've seen, a, there's been a, a great study, uh, Mette Berendt and her group in, uh, in Denmark um, has done some fantastic epilepsy work. And the, the reason why I say she has fantastic epilepsy work is because she does a lot of uh, longitudinal work. Um, uh, and um, some people, you know, have critiqued, because not all of them have an MRI scan and stuff like this. However, we know that, you know, uh, dogs which um, have no neurological deficits, who are between six months and six years um, have a very high chance, um, that especially when they have single generalized seizures, that they have idiopathic epilepsy, right? And then the figures vary a bit, but it's it's normally around 90 or more. You know, one study even said 97%, right? So, you know, the likelihood that you find any structure abnormalities is, is minimal, um, uh, especially, obviously, um, like I said, if the dogs have generalized tonic spinal seizures. Um, the interesting thing on her study is she had uh, uh, more than 20 dogs which she followed, which were not on medication, right? Because a lot of owners don't want to give medication. Um, and especially after, um, you know, the experience I shared with you today about the, uh, about the person who had epilepsy and, and she said, well, I'd rather don't have medication than have something which causes me memory deficits or makes me sleepy the whole day. Um, and um, it definitely was not as easy um, to predict how animals developed, and quite a few of them, even if they had quite a few seizures in the beginning, they became seizure-free over time. And and that kind of makes totally sense, because your medication, what it does, it doesn't treat the epilepsy itself, it just treats um, or makes it less likely that you have a seizure. It changes your seizure threshold, right? Um, so one of the theories, and it comes go back obviously only a year ago when I did my PhD, which is a tiny bit longer now, um, we were looking at that time at factors um, which were not from the disease itself but associated with a high seizure frequency. So when you have a high seizure frequency, there are certain transporters which are upregulated and some changes, and, and it kind of makes sense. So it could be that you have an epilepsy, um, um, which is your propensity to have seizures, um, and then um, if you have a lot, then that will trigger another cascade of events and makes you less likely likely to respond. So is it the right thing not to treat? Um, who knows? And if you would ask a lot of people uh, in human medicine, they often start treatment very early on, but that often has social uh, um, um, social reasoning or driver's license reasoning, which is obviously a big impact because you can't, if you have seizures, you are not allowed to drive. Um, in, in pets after Metabaron study, um, most of these dogs did really well. Um, I think uh, as, a, as a rule of thumb, um, I um, always recommend, and, um, and we have obviously the International Epilepsy Task Force, we're working on some more papers on that, that if you have a high seizure frequency or density, I call it, um, um, like cluster seizure styles of lepticus, or you have an increase in seizure frequency over time, then I would always recommend starting medication because you want to stop that. Because we do see, especially for our trials, a population which are getting worse over time. Um, but there are a lot of dogs, and thanks to the vet compass work we've been doing here, we could see, you know, a lot of dogs, they're, they're actually fine. Um, and they don't even, you know, we just published another paper on seizure occurrence in first opinion practice. And quite a few of them were not on drugs. So, it, uh, you know, it's not something which always needs to be medicated. I think it's a conversation with the vet and the owner and so on. So, 
yeah, again, a more complex disease than I think we thought originally. And to, um, to maybe a, a second part, if it like, so what do you what do you think is going to happen in the in the in the next five years, or maybe even beyond that time, um, maybe in general, and then specifically, actually, what 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 are you going to be trying to look at? What would you like to look at yourself? So what we were um, working towards, um, and a lot of people have been working, is to. F- um, think about how could we predict when the next seizure will strike. Um, we put on a ground which was not funded unfortunately to uh, some working on some machine learning. Um, when we did some number crunching it, it looked very individualized but I think the next um, next thing on the horizon will be to see if we can see either that there's a behavior change before the animal has a seizure and then you can capture this and that will then cascade an event i think there needs to be so an owner at this time who then which or a vet who would change the medication so instead of giving um high doses of chronic medication perhaps having a more lower dose chronic medication then you change the um amount when you know that the seizure will be more likely, so you have a side effect only around that time. That might be something. Um, people have worked in human medicine on um, measuring brainwave activity, EEGs, and then looking if you can find an algorithm which then would predict again a seizure activity and then um, give either a, a stimulus, um, electrical stimulus, to stop that happening or give medication. I think this is probably the future. Um, I think the future will be big data for the individual, um, um, taking heart rate, movement, um, capturing um, hopefully EG activity and, and other parameters we find is important, and then using that information directly for the pad. I mean, the, the idea for the, um, you know, what we put in to, to uh, as a grant was um, uh, like a little bit like a weather app, you know, like you, you don't have a say tomorrow there will be rain, but you have a 5% chance or a 70% chance of rain. Um, and then obviously you would have to see how that would change your behavior and if it's, it's, it's okay to do so. Um, looking ahead, I think we hopefully will be able to characterize the different types of epilepsy for the different breeds better and for the individual patient within those breeds better and um, understand a little bit more which patient will definitely progress and get worse and can we intervene and which will not. Um, and so at the end of the day will be more individualized um, treatment modality. I hope we will do a lot more functional um, diagnostics so that we are able not just to image the brain and say we didn't find any structure abnormality but actually looking at the functional um, effects of epilepsy on that brain and is there anything what we can do to modify. Do, do they do that in people? Um, they do some functional MRIs now in people um, and especially when you think about epilepsy surgery which in, in veterinary medicine there's a couple of groups around the world who are working on finding the epileptic focus and I think um, we'll soon hear about some more work that hope I would even hope that MRI might one day help us to identify that because um, the problem obviously is that you have to capture the um, seizure activity um, and it's, I mean it will not happen all the time so your dog might not be an MRI it will be anesthetized right um, 
uh, but perhaps there are some other changes which happen in this epileptic focus, and then potentially surgery might might be an option in human medicine. There has been a little bit of a tendency, and you know, it's not I'm not a, a medic, but what I can see as a someone who's looking uh, um, and and reading the literature and going to talks is and speaking to some human surgeons, is that they think now doing surgery earlier rather than later. Um, so in the past, they, you know, it was like the last after we've done so many other uh, stuff, um, but now um, for certain epilepsy types they are thinking, oh, perhaps we should do this actually earlier. We could save a lot of um, um, brain. Because that's one of the problems. Even if you start having an epileptic focus in one region, some of the uh, humans, sorry, um, and the same as in dogs and cats, they will suddenly get a mirror focus. You know, you, you control that focus, and then suddenly there's somewhere else in the brain. Um, yeah, so I think our management options will become more complex probably embracing the complexity of the disease, but also more individualized. That's at least what I hope. Um, yeah. Well, that's, uh, that's pretty fabulous. And, and are, you, um, are you thinking there's going to be any significant uh, breakthroughs in particular, or if you've gone like a, away from that, there's going to be a drug that will sort this out or a surgical procedure that will sort this out? Yeah, I think that the likelihood is not so high, I think. Um, I'm saying this, um, perhaps, you know, we know that dog A will need um, treatment A and dog B will need treatment B and we don't know this at the moment either, right? We don't know, I mean, new medicine there are further with that that certain epilepsy types will respond better to certain um, treatment modalities. So perhaps we can help with that. Um, um, yeah, but I don't think there will be a magic wand. Fair, fair enough, fair enough, Holger. Um, I think uh, I think maybe we should wrap it up there. So I suppose uh, I would love to say, well, I will go and say thank you uh, very much for your for your time uh, today. The the uh, the first and hundredth uh, podcast. I think that's good. I mean, obviously, I know you're moving on to pastures green or maybe just pastures a further east, <laughs> but uh, um, but um, but maybe. Uh, if uh, if I'm still around here, we could do a 200th uh, podcast. We could give you yeah, a call and uh, yeah. and uh, find out what's going on in a, in a few years' time. Definitely look forward to that. Um, yeah, um, I mean, has been a great pleasure and honour to do the first and the hundredth, um, and it's great that this is continuing to live on the podcast. Well, thank you very much again, and uh, and thank you for for listening. So uh, don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit based device, and that way you don't even have to worry about missing a podcast. If you could leave us a review, um, that would be great, and we'll place some show notes on the RVC pages. So just type in RVC Clinical Podcast into your search engine of choice, and it should be top of the tree. If you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast, please get in touch. You can either email dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk or tweet at Don Barfield. Until next time, bye bye. Bye now. <laughs>